Good morning, and welcome to Healthy Options. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and our guest here today is Linda Ziegler. She's a nurse who has been involved in women's health education for over 26 years. She's currently the manager of the Breast Cancer Intervention Project at Penobscot Bay Medical Center in Rockport, Maine. This includes the coordination of the Common Journey Women's Cancer Support Group, which offers skilled, facilitated support groups for women with cancer. She also co-founded the Maine Breast Nurse Network, and which has created a peer professional network for Maine nurses working in the field of breast health. She's initiated the Navigator Program, also at Penn Bay, which provides guidance for those seeking care for breast cancer. She also works with Midcoast Family Planning, coordinating weaving connections. It's a mother-daughter puberty education workshop. She's won many awards, numerous awards for her work, and we're delighted to have her here, here on Healthy Options. Welcome. Linda Ziegler. And I know uh, a big event, we want to talk a little bit about what the work that you do uh, is, and I know uh, a big, big upcoming event um, is the Sexuality After Breast Cancer uh, Conference, which is happening on Saturday, November 15th at the Holiday Inn in Saco, Maine, and we're going to talk about what that means. Um, let's just get a little bit of background, and let's talk a little bit about your work at Penn Bay and about, about where you come in when uh, someone has been... Um, diagnosed with breast cancer and what, what that means. Okay, well, thanks, Rhonda. It's a pleasure to be on your program this morning. Uh, when someone is diagnosed with breast cancer at Penn Bay, generally they are sent to a surgeon to uh, speak to them about what kind of treatment is ahead of them. At that point, I get a referral from the surgeon's office, and uh, before they go into the hospital for their surgery, I try and see them in anywhere from an hour to sometimes longer to make sure that they understand their diagnosis, they understand what the course of treatment will be, and where, how to get through the maze that is the medical system. And uh, I also make an assessment about what their support looks like, both emotional and practical, like do they have a reliable car to get back and forth to their hospital appointments or their um, their treatment appointments? Do they have childcare needs? Do they have insurance? Is there anybody in their family or in their circle of friends that can offer some support and help them as they go through treatment? Um, so there's the practical part, and then there's the psychological part. Often, uh, the reason the Navigator program was developed was we realized at Penn Bay that giving somebody a list of numbers for resources was not enough, that we really had to sort of get our arms around them uh, shortly after they were diagnosed. So they had someone to touch in with as they began this journey, uh, which any, uh, any crisis, uh, sort of catastrophic diagnosis is a journey. Mm -hmm. And when people are first diagnosed uh, with cancer, any kind of cancer, there is this, uh, for many of them, there's this deer in the headlights moment, where everything that's said to them in the doctor's office, sort of, they sort of hear, but once the word cancer, everything else becomes like white noise in the background. <laughs> so Absolutely. one of the one of the things that we thought a navigator could do is sort of reach out to people who are struggling with a very steep learning curve and just reinforce uh, the education that they need because the people that 
learn about their diagnosis and their treatment, usually do the best because um, they become advocates for themselves. So the navigator program, is that a, a person? Or That's is me. That, it's you. You're the navigator. I'm the nurse navigator. Okay. <laughs> and so you will say more than, just call this resource, call that resource. You'll say, this is what we have available. Let's get and, you and into this. Yes, and, and um, the navigator program, I'm the nurse navigator, but everyone that has an interface with this patient is part of the navigator service. Uh, when we first organize this program, um, the radiologists, the surgeons, primary care, nurses, social workers, um, even uh, the patient registration folks. Everyone that meets this patient knows about this program. And you don't have to be referred by a surgeon. I've had women call me themselves and say, I've just been diagnosed. Um, if, you live, if you live within um, Knox County, some people end up going elsewhere for their treatment for one reason or another, but I still like to uh, touch in with them and make sure that things are going okay. Everyone has to leave this area for radiation. We have, uh, so there's a lot of reasons people have to leave the community for their treatment or for a second opinion. But at the same time, there's somebody that they can call once we've had a chance to get to know each other a little bit and say, well, I need more information about this, or something happened and I don't know what to do about it. I might not know the answer, but I can certainly facilitate and do a little research for that patient and help them find the answer or the resources they need. That is so extraordinary because so many times, as you said, it is the deer in the headlight idea of, wow, my whole life has changed and now what? And there is no one grounded who has experience often to say hey let me help you do this so that is quite a valuable service i think i think it is harder uh too when you are living in a rural and small community um i think centers have many layers of services that are in one place and for smaller community hospitals we have to coordinate the services in a different way and um Sometimes it's difficult to know where those services are and how to access them. And um, so that's one of the things that someone in a navigator role can help with. So one of the things you see, and I know for the last eight years, you have been part of the facilitated breast cancer support groups and, and working with, with people directly mm -hmm. who, have the, um, who have the diagnosis in addition to the navigator position. Right. Um, tell me, how has... How are things changed? How, how has the idea of treating breast cancer and looking at an individual with that diagnosis, how, how has that evolved or has it? Or well, how would you talk about that? Well, I think a, a number of things have changed in the history of, of say, the last uh, 40 years in breast cancer. I think one of the biggest changes began with uh, First Lady Betty Ford taking breast cancer out of the closet, talking about her diagnosis, um, letting America see a woman go through treatment. And um, that changed the whole sort of advocacy movement around women and cancer because many of women's cancers, uh, you know, cancer in general in this country, cancer is one of those words that we consider a poison word. We don't want to hear it. 
All of us are afraid of that word because most of us know someone that's been diagnosed with cancer, and many of us know someone that has died from cancer. So it's and there's so much news about cancer that often the treatments seem almost more frightening than the diagnosis. And for women, I think it's uh, particularly um, concerning because so often the cancers that we get occur in our breasts or in our pelvic organ region. And these are uh, not only uh, reproductive issues, but it's also body image issues and the sense of how we feel about ourselves as a woman. So not talking about that is, uh, doesn't, it doesn't help, but it's often where people end up. So I think that's one of the changes is that we are talking about all kinds of cancer, not just breast cancer. And I think uh, my experience, I've been working uh, in the field of breast cancer since 1993. And what I've seen is that the breast cancer advocacy movement is one of the most powerful health advocacy movements in the country. And they learned their lessons early on from the AIDS movement, meaning that you can't be quiet when it comes to getting legislation and research funds appropriated and having improved services. And so I think that um, we learned a lot from the AIDS advocates. And now uh, cancer, breast cancer research funding is one of the big areas of cancer research uh, at the National Cancer Institute, at the Department of Defense, and in uh, private research as well. The Department of Defense. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> They, um, That's a conversation unto itself. But yes, go ahead. It is, just, but, just in a nutshell, yeah. Well, uh, T- Tom Harkin, the senator from Iowa, uh, was instrumental in getting this passed. There was a way to appropriate some uh, funds for new researchers. Uh, a lot, there's a lot of politics around research, and so the Department of Defense um, has a segment of its budget that is dedicated to breast cancer research. And I think that's probably enough said about that. <laughs> okay, good. But your tax well, dollars at work. I was just going to say that. <laughs> Thank you, Linda. By the way, this is Healthy Options, and we are speaking with uh, Linda Ziegler, who is uh, a nurse and women's education uh, uh, advocate and, and practitioner at uh, Penn Bay um, Medical Center in Rockport, Maine. Um, so, so someone is diagnosed, and they're coming through the system, and I know we we can talk about all the many options that a a woman might have in terms of treatment, but let's say we're going the route of the surgery and and those kinds of things. You've advocated and you've helped them to get to that point, and after after the surgery and, and after starting their treatment, how how do we get held in in that respect? Uh, well, um, I'm gonna I'll answer that, Rhonda. But I just want to go back to your first question: How things change? Because oh, of course. there's a couple Continue. of other points of that I wanted to make. Sure. Um, another huge change in breast cancer treatment is that uh, years ago, your grandmother probably had what's called a radical mastectomy, where not only the uh, affected breast or the diseased breast was removed surgically but all of the lymph nodes and all of the chest muscle and some of the muscle under her arm. So not only was it uh, a disfiguring uh, surgery, it was a disabling surgery because women never regained the full function of their arms with that much uh, muscle, nerve, 
and lymph removed. So that surgery is not done anymore. There is a modified radical mastectomy, uh, which is, is done for cancers that, well, for cancers that are larger than uh, would fit the, the criteria for lumpectomy, which is now uh, the research of the 90s showed that lumpectomy followed by radiation, a lumpectomy is a small area of, uh, of the uh, tissue surrounding the, uh, where the tumor is removed, and then that area is irradiated and sometimes followed by uh, hormone treatment. And so a woman gets to have a breast-conserving surgery. Uh, lumpectomy is not always a treatment that uh, is for everyone based on the size of the tumor, the type, of, uh, the type or aggressiveness of the cancer, or the size of the breast. If a large amount of tissue needs to be removed and it's a very small breast, you're not going to get a good cosmetic result. So there's a, there's a number of criteria, but lumpectomy is um, now becoming, because our mammography and screening has improved so much, we're finding breast cancers that are much smaller that can uh, meet the criteria of the lumpectomy surgery. And uh, the the kind of boogaboo with lumpectomy is that radiation is the follow-up treatment. And for folks that live in rural areas, that means a drive five days a week for six to seven weeks to a radiation unit. Hmm. So... um, there are some patients uh, that, because of their health or uh, other issues in their lives, say, I just don't want to make that uh, journey and feel exhausted from driving back and forth every day, so I'll have a mastectomy. But, um, you know, it's surprising, you know, that what they say in Maine, you can't get there from here, but most of us find that, oh, it's not so far. Once we've done it, it's not so far, and more and more women that are within that criteria for lumpectomy or choosing lumpectomy because they want to hang on to their breast. Yes, definitely. So we're also, you, you were talking about, um, well, as I said, so someone has gone through all of that and is doing well. Let's do the best possible outcome yeah. here. Uh, people are doing well. And um, what other issues start coming well, up? Because I think this kind of brings us into the uh, the idea of the the fabulous conference that's okay. going to be happening in November. Well, I think there's I think there's a couple of things that we're thinking about more um, as we offer services to people diagnosed with cancer, and um, one of those things is quality of life. Often, uh, in the fir- early stages of a diagnosis, you're trying to learn about the disease. You're trying to find the best doctors to go to. You're trying to make decision after decision after decision about what kind of treatment and what kind of follow-up. And so, as I said earlier, it's a steep learning curve, and you're pretty much right there in the middle, one step at a time, going through what you have to go through to uh, get on the other side of treatment. But one of the things I think that is often missed in our uh, intensity of getting all of these services coordinated and the, the patient uh, treated appropriately is that there, when anyone has a serious illness, there's a reflective piece that is really um, important. Uh, I, and I won't wait the importance, but it's, it's just a crucial thing that someone that has gone through uh, a catastrophic diagnosis and some rugged treatment, there's a reflective piece that you need to do that 
where you ask the question, what does this mean to me in my lived experience of this illness? And how do I feel about it? And how am I coping with it? So that's sort of a quality of life issue. But I think a quality of life uh, is becoming very, very important as we look at all of the cancer patients that are now surviving because of advances of early diagnosis and treatment. So um, quality of life, one of the places you can start looking at those issues is in a support group because you're uh, with people that have had this same experience, maybe not the exact same experience, but certainly someone that has gone through cancer diagnosis, surgery, and follow-up treatment has more insight into your story than someone who has not. And oftentimes the women in the cancer support group say, everybody thinks I'm fine, but I'm not. I still, I'm worried every time I have an ache in my knee, I think, oh, is there cancer in my knee? I'm worried that I don't have energy and I can't remember things. And is it me? Is it the cancer treatment? What's going on? And so a support group is a place where uh, peers, if you will, can can talk about uh, their experiences, share uh, what they've learned. And there's a huge amount of education and information exchanged in a support group besides the emotional support and understanding that comes with talking with people that have been through the same thing. So uh, that's one area that's one area that uh, helps people work through some of the quality of life. Uh, another area is um, talking about the physiological after effects of treatment. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was looking at some... Uh, pamphlets and handout material that uh, is used for folks with uh, breast cancer. When it gets to chemotherapy and side effects, it talks about fatigue, nausea and vomiting, hair loss, mouth sores, uh, changes in skin, these kinds of things. Nowhere on it is there any mention of a change in sexual function. And um, sexual function is a quality of life issue that's right up there. But uh, often women will not, uh, or men, will not approach that topic if the physician or the nurse doesn't. So one of the reasons we're having this conference is we know that couples, individuals, are hungry for information about uh, intimacy, function, and uh, a a restoring a sense of well-being. So we have uh, three fabulous presenters that yes. will be speaking. Susan Doty, uh, who is a nurse practitioner at um, uh, in Portland, uh, has a women's health uh, center, is going to be addressing the physiological aspects of sexual function. And uh, we have uh, Gina Rourke, who is the proprietor of Nomia, which is a sexuality boutique and mm-hmm. resource center. And then Dr. William Collinge, who is a, a psychologist who has done a lot of research about intimacy for the National Cancer Institute and has written uh, widely about integrative care and uh, complementary health uh, therapies that can uh, help restore intimacy uh, between couples that are going through 
uh, cancer diagnosis. So the name of the conference, by the way, is Sexuality After Breast Cancer Conference. It's Saturday, November 15th, 2008, from 8.30 to 2 p.m. at the Holiday Inn and Conference Center in Saco, Maine. And there must be a phone number here, 283-7575, if anyone's interested. Um, just to let you know that, that yeah, where that's, that's Southern happening. Southern Maine Medical Center, and Peggy Belanger is the nurse that's doing registrations. I want to say, too, the cost is very affordable. It's $10, and this oh. uh, is to help offset the cost of lunch. But I'd like to talk uh, just briefly, if I may, about the organization that's sponsoring this conference. It's the um, Breast Cancer it's the Maine Breast Health Coalition, and these are breast cancer advocacy groups such as the American Cancer Society, the Maine Cancer Foundation, uh, Coleman, Maine, uh, out of Bangor, the um, Maine Breast Cancer Coalition, the Maine Breast and Cervical Health Program, and the Maine Breast Nurse Network. So all of the, this is a great organization of uh, advocates and clinicians that are looking at the issue of breast cancer and trying to make positive impact uh, in both clinical and uh, patients' lives. I find it so fascinating that this is the first time we're actually having a conversation about sexuality and breast cancer. It seems to me that um, being a health professional myself, people come in with a, a, a serious issue, and the way it's structured, it's all about the treatment. It's all about, this is serious. We can't think about something like sexuality. We have to be thinking of serious survival issues and that kind of thing. Forgetting that leading a life, leading your nut life when you're, you know, out of an acute phase of a particular situation is really what it's all about. And what are we doing the treatment for? And, and we kind of lose a perspective. And so this is very, very exciting that, um, that this is happening. Um, well, I, I'll tell you, um, Coleman, uh, back in 2004, I was, I was on their board, and we decided, we, ha we ended up with a little extra money, and we thought, well, what could we do with it? And I've been um, interested in sexuality and breast cancer ever since uh, I got into the topic, and I said, well, why don't we have a conference about sexuality after breast cancer? And we organized that in 2004, and we had uh, actually Dr. Collins was one of the presenters then, and we had a nurse practitioner from the Gillette Center uh, for Women's Cancer at Mass General come, and we had room for 80 people. We had a waiting list because people were calling from all over the state because, you say, as you say, um, open conversation with uh, information about sexuality after breast cancer is uh, one of those rare conversations, and a lot of people are uncomfortable, as I said earlier, in broaching the subject with their physician. And so we want to, uh, this conference is for patients, it's for partners, it's for people that are working in the field that want to become more comfortable in discussing, introducing the topic of uh, sexual health following treatment. And, you know, because our culture is what it is, um, as a nurse, I think it's always important to begin by asking, well, how do you see that this uh, treatment and uh, your experiences are affecting your role as, you know, partner, wife, mother, 
employee and start there. That's an easy one. And then you can move on to, uh, are there any physical things that you've experienced? And uh, move from there and find out what that is. Just start going through the layers to help a person get to a place where she can talk about um, the kinds of issues that come up as a result of chemotherapy or hormone therapy or the surgery itself, because and, and partners too suffer from this. I was going to ask. It, it, it seemed that there are a couple of places where this could be uh, an issue. One is a partner may feel well. It's inappropriate to want to ha- initiate or exactly. to that or what's appropriate touch. I don't want to hurt you. That's it. Those yeah. kinds of questions. Sometimes might come partners, up. partners, um, or partners are so anxious about what's going on in terms of treatment and will my partner survive that the idea of even bringing up uh, sexual intimacy or uh, that type of issue is something that they oh, what a chump I would be to mention this. Um, so I think part of intimacy, true intimacy, is having good communication. And then uh, because I don't know too many people that can jump to physical intimacy without having uh, communication, well, there's, I'm sure there's some. That's another, but, another topic. <laughs> that that's another discuss. show. <laughs> well, Linda, it looks like you're looking for something really interesting. I'm, yeah. I'm going to just tell everybody that you're listening to Healthy Options on WERU. I'm Rhonda Feynman. Our topic today is sexuality after breast cancer and some uh, resources that are available for breast cancer um, Survivors, our guest is Linda Ziegler. She's a nurse who's been involved with women's health education for over 26 years, currently the manager of the Breast Cancer Intervention Project at Penobscot Bay Medical Center in Rockport. She also uh, coordinates the Common Journey Women's Cancer Support Group, which offers skill-facilitated support group for women with cancer. Um, Many other... uh, fabulous uh, things that that Linda's doing, but right now we're talking about the Sexuality After Breast Cancer Conference happening Saturday, November 15th in Saco, Maine, and I do want to give that phone number again. It's uh, to call Peggy Bellinger, who's uh, doing the um, registration down at Southern Maine Medical Center. It's uh, 283, of course, area code 207, 283-7575. Okay, well, Rhonda, I wanted to say... uh little more about um, the side effects that people experience after uh, breast surgery. Um, there is a physical change. There can be um, some pain, discomfort that lingers. Um, but there's a, there's a psychological pain with confronting that loss and the change in body image. And um, that often... Uh, leads to uh, an appropriate but reactive depression during that time. And so uh, it can be difficult to even feel like you want to think about intimacy with your partner. You're too busy just getting through your day, getting through your treatment, trying to do it all and go through the cancer treatment. So uh, that's, that's one of the issues that can come up. And then later, uh, depending on your treatment, uh, a lot of times women, in terms of body image, have, say, losing my hair during chemotherapy was much harder than losing my breast or, or, or the surgery. And uh, so there, there are a lot of different things that come up that you're coping with that you have never had to cope with before. And depending on 
what your story is with coping with difficulty, you may or may not be doing a, a very good job. Um, and if you don't have adequate support and an understanding family or a circle of friends that can gather around, um, that becomes uh, an even more difficult uh, piece of the story of going through cancer. So um, that loss and grief, uh, that's one of the things. Uh, and then there are the physiological changes that happen uh, with some of the treatments. Uh, some of the chemotherapies and the, hormone, and the hormonal treatments really throw younger women into instant menopause. And, um, and menopause is a gradual, uh, a gradual shift where uh, menses eventually ceases, but it's a number of years, and there's, and, and there's a, uh, just like you don't start your period overnight, um, you don't end your period overnight either. But uh, with, Of course, for those going through menopause, it, it doesn't feel so gradual, although we know <laughs> it, it is. But that's another conversation as well. Okay. But, but with, um, with cancer treatment, yes. some cancer treatments, it is an instant chemically induced menopause. Overnight. And so when something is that instantaneous, the side effects and the symptoms of that are much more extreme. So um, hot flashes, dry, dr vaginal dryness, night sweats, irritation, mood swings, um, all of these things. And lack of interest in uh, sex is a, another side effect because uh, not only are estrogen and progesterone no longer in the picture, neither is testosterone. And even though women only make a small amount of testosterone, it is the hormone or the androgen of desire. So uh, many of the breast cancers that are diagnosed are what they call estrogen sensitive. Probably 65% of breast cancer is estrogen and possibly progesterone sensitive. So the uh, treatment for that is a hormonal treatment that represses uh, either the production of estrogen or blocks the access of estrogen to uh, uh, receptor sites on uh, tumor cells. So repressing the estrogen rep uh, does everything that menopause does. And um, if you've had a cancer-sensitive uh, tumor, Estrogen, estrogen replacement is not an option estrogen, for you. Estrogen sensitive. Yeah, estrogen yes. sensitive. Right. Sorry, oh, I said so cancer you, sensitive. But that's okay. But yeah. you can't. So you, you, so you do, can't. You can't do right. uh, systemic estrogen. Right. Mm -hmm. And and that comes up in my practice as well, where for someone with an estrogen sensitive cancer, I'm not able to prescribe certain herbs mm -hmm. that I might otherwise. Right. And we have to go around it in a different a different way. So yeah. one of the things that uh, Gina will be talking about is lubrication. Uh, what can you use for lubrication for vaginal dryness? Because not only is it uncomfortable, penetrative intercourse can be uh, painful. So what, what should you use? And Gina feels very strongly that uh, a water-based uh, lubricant has some real advantages because you can buy, there's two kinds of water-based lubricants, those with glycerin and those without. And uh, Gina is a proponent of uh, using uh, lubricants that are uh, glycerin-free. Glycerin's really a preservative, but it's also a sugar. And one of the side effects of having all the normal flora wiped out in your body through treatment oh 
is yeast infection or fungal infection. So um, it's not to say that you couldn't use this, but you need to be aware that if you um, if you are sensitive to it in that way, you need to switch to something that is glycerin-free. Uh, she also likes uh, uh, lubricants that are paraben-free. Um, there are a couple, uh, couple of manufacturers. Uh, Astroglide makes a paraben and glycerin-free lube, and it's an over-the-counter um, product. And then uh, the one that she's loving right now is the organic uh, and uh, uh, organic Sliquid, S-L-I-Q-U-I-D. I love the name, Sliquid. And it's also glycerin-free and paraben-free. And uh, they're all condom-friendly. So... Uh, these are the two. Uh, the other advantage to a water-based uh, lubricant is that it's absorbed through the skin and it helps moisturize. Um, there are also silicone-based lubricants that work great, but they uh, they don't have that moisturizing factor. So she's going to be talking about uh, some of this. Gina's a sexuality educator and proprietor of Nomia. The sensuality boutique uh, in Portland. So uh, she is a great resource and works closely with many, many providers in referring people back and forth to help them deal with uh, some of the issues that come up around uh, function. This is, uh, by the way, if you've just tuned in, we are talking about the sexuality after breast conference. Breast conference. Uh, I mean, the Sexuality After Breast Cancer Conference, we'll get this right, on Saturday, November 15th, 8.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's at the Holiday Inn and Conference Center in Saco, Maine. And um, as you just heard, there'll be, um, uh, many, there'll be three speakers discussing aspects of, of this quality of life issue for breast cancer survivors. And to register, you would need to call Peggy Bellinger at Southern Maine Medical Center. Her phone number is 207 283 7575. And we're, um, we're speaking with Linda Ziegler about this, and she's uh, one of the people um, helping. You, you started, you initiated, helped initiate one of the first ones back right. in 2002. And Linda is a nurse who's been involved in women's health education for over 26 years, and she works currently as the manager of the Breast Cancer Intervention Project at Penobscot Bay Medical Center in Rockport, Maine. So, Linda, let's, um, let's move to a little bit of uh, another aspect of sexuality and, and, and breast cancer and discuss relationship, how that is affected okay. and how we can uh, move, you know, uh, deal with those issues. All right. That, uh, I'd like to talk about that, Rhonda. Um, breast cancer and relationship, here's the, here's the negative impact. There's stress and suffering on both sides. It's not just the person diagnosed. It's the person or persons that love this person. There's also cost in time, cost in energy, cost in financial resources that impact a relationship. And some studies show that there's an increased risk of breakup because of this tremendous stress that now enters uh, the lives of uh, folks. Some of the positive impact could be, you know, you're going along, living your life, and all of a sudden this happens, and it interrupts a pattern and it gives you an opportunity to reappraise what's important here um i've often i've often heard people say you know this is not a rehearsal i'm going for it and uh so often 
partners have to look at their deepest values. And that helps deepen the sense of true intimacy between them. There's a, a nurse researcher, uh, Laurel Norhouse is her name. And uh, she has studied the impact of breast cancer and intimacy. And this is what she's found. A patient's psychological adjustment to the diagnosis is a predictor of well-being in the medical outcomes for that patient. And as we're talking about partners, the partner's adjustment has a direct impact on the patient's adjustment. So both impact the other's sense of well-being and being able to cope. So um, some of the keys to that adjustment are just being courageous to communicate because withholding really builds walls. Um, spiritual maturity, you know, and one of, the, one of the things I think about is that instead of going, why, why not? You know, and being willing to see uh, if this is, if this is uh, happening to me, Where's the turnaround for me? What, what is here besides, oh, I'm afraid and I want to survive, but what else is here for me to explore? Um, outside support is key to adjustment and, uh, believe me, a sense of humor. Um, so partners are usually the primary uh, source of support. And the quality of support, as uh, Norhouse discovered, influences the patient's sense of well-being. And it also, you know, being able to support someone increases marital satisfaction, feeling supported, being able to give meaningful support. Um, Partners, and let's not just say marriage, but partners, all partners, um, increase the sense of partner's satisfaction. And uh, Karen Weiss, who's a researcher at Georgetown University, found that lower recurrence rates of breast cancer when there are better uh, better structures for support in that patient's life. I, so I, there's longer survival. I also want to point out, you know, for those who are listening who may have gone through this journey or had friends and family with maybe less positive outcomes, you know, it, it, it's easy to think, oh, did I do something wrong? Did yeah. I not support enough? That's yeah. not what we're talking no, no, about. No. And, and not to kind of land on that if you're listening and you, you felt your stomach grip. Oh, no. He or she died anyway. Oh, mm-hmm. what did I do wrong? No, please, let's not let's not do that. Right, Just... right. Um, well, you know, one of the things uh, I think that makes makes this all a difficult topic is that uh, there's a hypersexuality to American life that the culture uh, itself sort of induces sort of a dysfunction, if you would, and there's. Um, a lot of depression, there's cultural, uh, the culture has sexual addiction, and we, there's so much about it uh, on the newsstands every day when we walk out the door um, that it almost normalizes this sort of addictive uh, attitude and expectation around sexuality, and our children are way overexposed to it. So when we enter into our uh, partnership relationships, there, there's almost a, an unspoken contract. There's not going to be any illness because the cultural, the cultural norm is there's not going to be any illness. Sex is always going to be important. Really. <laughs> and there's going to be nothing but truth-telling in this relationship. So um, 
I think it's helpful when couples are facing a diagnosis like this together is that they take time to reframe the importance of sexuality uh, in their relationship. So ask these questions. What do I truly need? What is my highest good? What's my partner's highest good? What are my deepest values? What are my greatest fears? And what are my greatest hopes? Where, where do they lie? And then talking about that with each other. That's a way into this very important uh, communication so that um, there's trust when you discuss these kinds, of, uh, these kinds of reflections with each other. That deepens the trust between you. And, um, you know, one of the uh, areas of a partner's stress uh, that even can exceed a patient's stress is that they feel left out of the whole equation. Here, everyone rushes to support the patient. And the partner is just, you know, suck it in, pal. And um, so they can experience helplessness, powerlessness, um, and they just feel like there's nothing they can do to make a, a difference. So um, when somebody feels that way, it's harder to feel like, I know what I can do to support. Um, there's, uh, I know what to do to be a good caregiver. And so what happens is exhaustion, burnout, and the partner gets sick. So uh, a way to sort of eliminate this, or at least is to acknowledge that this can happen and to talk about it. Um, and so, you know, Dr. Collins, who's one of the presenters, has done some very interesting research. Uh, it's called The Couples Project. It was funded by the National Cancer Institute. And the four questions that this research asked was, can partners be trained to provide effective comfort to the patient? And can partners increase their feeling of uh, self-efficacy? That's their ability to be effective and supportive. And can they make a difference in the patient's life? And can the quality of the relationship be improved? And so the early uh, study that he did, the frame was there were 46 couples that were recruited to participate. The couples were married, unmarried, gay, and straight. And uh, they recruited a team of massage therapists who were then trained in uh, Massage focusing on safe areas only, the head, the neck, the shoulders, the back, the hands, the feet. Touch therapy, contemplative practice, and there was one trainer per two couples and one massage table per couple, and um, individual attention given to teach and then coach partners uh, learning to restore a sense of closeness through these safe uh, caressing massage therapy techniques. And this was uh, done as one-day workshops and was eight couples at a time, and uh, they trained the partner and the patient. The partner first got on the table and received, and then the patient got on the table. And the partner was instruct instructed by the therapist in the necessary skills to give comfort and relief. And so uh, this is a very important study because... We all need coaching when we're struggling. And so to think that, 
I have all the tools and all the knowledge I need to, in order to be an effective support person. Um, this, this kind of training can really make a difference uh, in restoring that sense of intimacy and wholeness in a relationship because, you know, maybe you are sick from the treatment and uh, there's too much stress around that to even think about um, a regular sexual intimacy that you used to have. But there are still ways to feel close through talking, the self-reflection process, and then doing, you know, intimate intimates, holding, cuddling, learning how to care and uh, give and receive to each other. That doesn't involve uh, maybe sex as you've always done it. Uh, I think one of the thing, the, one of the terms I hear from uh, women in the support group is the new normal. The new normal. The new normal that you're not expecting. The reality is, is it reasonable to expect that everything about my life is going to be restored in the way it was before I had this diagnosis and this treatment, and then uh, sometimes the ensuing side effects that can linger for a long time. Mm-hmm. So sometimes yes, and but oftentimes no. Oftentimes it's a new normal. Mm-hmm. It's a new normal. It's a new normal. Mm. Let's all think about that for a moment. We're talking to Linda Ziegler, and she's telling us about sexuality after breast cancer, and there's a conference about this on Saturday, November 15th at the Holiday Inn and Conference Center in Saco, Saco, Maine. And I should tell you, I, I have it in the, that there is a pre-registration deadline. It's November 10th for the November 15th conference. And you can call Peggy Bellinger at uh, Southern Maine Medical Center at 207-283-7575 to, to register for this. And uh, so we, we know that there's the touch caring and cancer uh, conversation that William, Dr. William Collins is going to be doing, Celebrate Your Sexual Self with Gina Rourke. And I believe that there's another, Susan Doughty, Doughty is, going to be, is going to be talking about changes that impact sexuality. And I Correct. think we've talked about that with, yeah. the, um, with the idea of, uh, of dryness, of uh, menopause coming and, and that kind of thing. Um, have you, um, is this something that you discuss in your facilitated, uh, in the, the support groups as well? Do these kinds of issues come yeah, up? Yeah, these issues do come up. Yeah. And um, one, one of the things uh, about support groups is people can go into their cancer story and talk about it and not freak anybody in that circle out. You know, a year after treatment, a lot of times families and friends are, oh, you're all better. Don't scare me and talk about about this. So a support group is a place where you can always feel comfortable going to that uh, part of your story. And, and it's important to say, even when you're in the thick of uh, diagnosis and treatment, Cancer is not all of who you are. It's not all of your story. It never will be. You're still all of the other parts of yourself and while you're going through this. So, so uh, but I, I think some of the things that women have shared in the support group is that, you know, everybody, the kids, the partner, the family, the friends, all want to feel assured that everything's fine now. But sometimes I just don't feel like it is. And anyone that's had a diagnosis of cancer, uh, even with the best prognosis, there is this sort of uh, shadowy place in the back of the mind that knows that it could come back. It always can. 
because that's one of the risks, uh, increased risks of having a cancer diagnosis is that you are more at risk for a recurrence. And that doesn't mean it's going to come back, but it's, it's just that factor that wasn't in your life before that diagnosis. So um, a support group can help folks uh, deal with those kinds of fears and also learn things that they can do. Uh, I want to mention um, one of the things that we, that's going on right now in the Midcoast community that is very, very exciting. Uh, Karen Searles, who is uh, an, uh, she does a Japanese energy uh, therapy called Jin Shinjitsu. Um, has been funded by the Pfeiffer Foundation to do a study on 10 consecutive treatments for women that have been diagnosed with breast cancer in the last three years. And her study is asking the question, can JSJ, Jinshin Jitsu, help alleviate some of the anxiety and stress and help people cope with um, treatment or the after effects of treatment. And uh, five women actually in the Common Journey group have enrolled in this study. And every we meet on the first and third Monday of every month, and people are just chiming in going, oh, I feel like I'm back to myself. My energy is back. My I'm able to relax. I'm able to sleep. So this is just anecdotal, I know, but uh, it's a very positive uh, response. So I'll give my phone number because if you're interested in learning more about this study, I can uh, connect you with Karen. My phone number is 594-6889. And if I'm not in the office, there's an answering machine. Just leave me your contact information and I will get back to you. That's five. Five nine four six eight eight nine, and that's for uh, contacting Linda Ziegler. She is a nurse. Um, she's been involved in women's health education for over twenty six years. She's currently the manager of the Breast Cancer Intervention Project at Penn Bay Medical Center in Rockport, Maine. This also includes the coordination of the Common Journey Women's Cancer Support Group which of course offers skilled facilitated support groups for women with cancer. She co-founded the Maine Breast Nurse Network, say that three times fast, okay, (laughs) which created a peer professional network for Maine nurses working in the field of breast health. She also initiated the Navigator Program at Penn Bay, which provides guidance for those seeking care for breast cancer. She's also working with Midcoast Family Planning, coordinating Weaving Connections. It's a mother-daughter puberty education workshop and she's won numerous awards for her work and uh, has been our guest today on healthy options Um, Linda thank you so much for coming and let me give your phone number again if you want to reach Linda at 594-6889 please do Um, and also to encourage people if they have questions or want to sign up for the sexuality and after breast cancer conference that's Saturday November 15th 8.30 to 2 p.m. at the Holiday Inn and Conference Center in Saco, Maine and um, Oh, um, yes. Uh, by the way, the, the pre-registration is November 10th, and I know there's one other thing we do need to talk about before we go. Um, her phone number uh, to register is Peggy Bellinger at 207-283-7575. 207-283-7575. Oh, don't want to forget that, so please. Okay, I, I, w- I just wanted to mention that uh, since it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month when we're recording this uh, this show, uh, that there are... Uh, there, there is a way to get screened for cancer, if uh, for breast cancer and cervical cancer, a very important program called the Main Breast and Cervical Health Program. And this is um, 
a program for women who are between the ages of 40 and 64 and have no insurance or limited insurance and uh, meet certain income guidelines, which are very generous. So if you're somebody that has a $15,000 deductible or doesn't cover this annual screening, this program is for you. And if you call 1-800-350-5180 and press 1, you can see if you qualify for this program and where you can make an appointment for this screening. Wow. Say that again, because that's really important. All right. This is the Maine Breast and Cervical Health Program's uh, number, 1-800-350-5180, and press 1. And there will be someone there to help uh, determine if you qualify for this program and then tell you where you can call to make an appointment and get free pap and pelvic exam, free clinical breast exam, and a mammogram at no cost. Because remember, early detection is the best protection for both uh, cervical and breast cancer. So if you haven't been screened, please take advantage of this program. You know, we could talk about a couple of uh, other things. Well, we can't talk about this because it's it's happened, but um, we do have a few minutes. So if there's any other uh, contacts you would like to give or... Well, I'd like to encourage um, nurses uh, that might be listening to this program that if you're interested in the Maine Breast Nurse Network, we're always uh, looking to increase our membership. Uh, The Maine Breast Nurse Network is for nurses that are working in some aspect of breast health care. And uh, one of the things, the goals of our our group are to provide uh, networking, mentoring, uh, support and education, and we have had we founded in we were founded in July of '07. We've put on four conferences, and uh, in those four conferences, over the course of the year, nurses have received uh, over 25 com- uh, continuing education units in the field of breast health care. So it's great for professional development. It's great to meet women from around the state and men who are working in this field, and learn from each other. It's a fantastic group, and uh, my number is 594-6889. You can call me, and I can tell you about when the next conference is and how to get uh, on our mailing list. We talked about some of the screening, and I, I just thought, we, since we do have a couple of minutes left, that we should uh, talk about some uh, their new and effective mammography. Things have changed. Tell, yeah, talk let about me talk that about a that a little bit. Um, if you are 40 or older... An annual mammogram is recommended. Uh, the reason we recommend it at 40 ever, and from every year from 40 on is because mammography is most effective when there are other films to compare because some of the uh, changes in the breast are so subtle that without uh, comparison of the films in the previous years, it's, diff- it's I mean, if you have a mammogram at 40 and then wait six years, it's better than nothing. But the value of that screening test is the serial comparison of films. Now, there's um, film mammography and there's digital mammography. For women that are under 50 or premenopausal and have more dense, uh, denser breasts, a digital or a risk history, a mother or a sister that's been diagnosed with breast cancer, digital mammography may be the best uh, type of screening for you because you get a better image of um, breast uh, of a denser breast. For women that are postmenopausal, uh, the research shows that between digital and uh, film, there's not that much difference. But I think digital is becoming the wave of the future, and 
um, many of the hospitals um, around this state have moved to digital or in, in the process of planning to move to digital. So you can talk this over with your primary care and um, determine what would be the best type of screening for you and then get referred. Well, I'm remembering in the past, the whole radiation concern is that, you know, of getting radiated, your breasts radiated when you're having a mammography. Is that still a... Well, the radiation dose is very low. I mean... It's like being out in the sun for a couple of hours. Uh, you get more radiation on a plane going from here to Chicago than you do from a mammogram. So, uh, you know, I guess it's always a concern, but that would be um, a minimal concern. Well, I think that's information that we need to hear because that's not... The, in yeah. the past, yeah, it yeah. was a whole, uh, definitely more of an issue, and I think people are still concerned about that. So the digital is a better a better picture and that's uh and for go can really see more for, through dense, for women with dense very breasts. dense uh breasts yeah. and so for women that that's are still great. menstruating the glandular tissue is much denser mm -hmm. in the breast correct well thank you linda here we are at healthy options i really want to thank you for coming and talking about um these issues and I want to thank you for the opportunity, Rhonda. It's been a lot easier than I thought it would be. <laughs> That's right. You were worried. No no worries. Come on the show. Um, just want to remind people you are listening to Healthy Options on WERU. I'm Rhonda Feynman. Um, if you want to reach Linda Ziegler, you can reach her at 594-6889. If you'd like to uh, register for the Sexuality After Breast Cancer Conference on Saturday, November 15th, that you can call uh, Peggy Bellinger at the Southern Maine Medical Center at 207-283-7575. And uh, pre-registration by November 10th is required, so do that soon. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks, Rhonda.